I'm just going to pray to start off our time. Father, thank you for this morning so far, just uh, to be able to come together as a, the family of God, a church, uh, to, to enjoy and celebrate uh, our relationship with you, Lord, for your grace and love you've demonstrated towards us, Lord, and we just thank you for allowing us to have this space to come together and worship as one body, uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'd be exalted and magnified this morning as we look at your word, and that we might be built up in our faith, and that all glory to go to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's not hard for any of us to grasp the fact that we live in a world that's plagued by death and destruction and evil. All too often, reports of tragic events sweep across the headlines. It's very easy. We turn on the TV and we see that we live in a fallen world. For example, just a couple months ago, on April 15th, two young men who were brothers detonated two bombs near the Boston Marathon finish line. Three people were killed and 264 were injured. And then two days later, on April 17th, a fire broke out at a fertilizer plant in Texas, resulting in an explosion that devastated a 37-square-block area. Fifteen people were killed and 200 were injured. And one month later, from May 19th through the 31st, a series of tornadoes tore through Oklahoma. And two of these were... EF5s, which are the strongest and most devastating kind, and they occurred only 11 days apart. One of these reached a width of 2.6 miles, the widest ever recorded, and it had wind speeds of up to 296 miles per hour. And all in all, nearly 50 people were killed and hundreds were injured. Now, the Bible is clear that the world in which we live is fallen because of sin. It's fallen because of mankind's rebellion against God. And the Bible is also clear that the wages of sin is death. And death certainly comes to all, but not to all in the same way, and not to all in the same timing. Some people live long lives, while others seem to have their lives cut short. And some people seem to die of natural causes, peacefully, while others die sudden and horrifying deaths. Now, is the manner of a person's death any indication of the degree to which that person has offended God? Does calamity befall only those who have a, a greater level of guilt before God? Are we to think of those who die sudden, horrifying deaths as somehow falling under a specific direct judgment of God? Well, the passage we're going to look at this morning, Luke 13, verses 1 through 5, it's going to give us a proper perspective on what to make of tragic events when they occur, whether we read of them in the headlines or even experience them firsthand. So read along with me, starting in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent 
you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This passage presents us with three clear realities. One, sin is universal. Two, judgment is certain. And three, repentance is absolutely necessary. We're going to look at the first reality that sin is universal. In verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And this particular event, there's no historical record outside of what we have in the Scriptures, what we have in Luke's account. That's the only historical record we have of this specific event. So all that we know based upon this text is that the Roman governor Pilate, he had some Galilean men executed in the temple at Jerusalem while they were offering their sacrifices and worship. Now this would have been an egregious offense to the Jews to have this pagan ruler come into their temple and to commit this atrocity. There would have been great outrage. However, when we read in this passage, the focus isn't on Pilate, but it's actually on the Galileans. They didn't bring up the situation to focus on Pilate and the nature of his offense, but the Galileans and the meaning of their death. And this is more clearly seen in Jesus' response to them. What did he say to them? He said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? We've got to remember, Jesus knows the heart of men. He reads the thoughts of men. And so when they presented this scenario, what he said indicated exactly what they were applying. In some way, maybe they thought they were worse sinners because they died in that way. Now, why would the people mention this event? It seems to come out of nowhere. Do they just want him to be informed of the current events? Or do they want to start some sort of Q&A on the, the purpose and meaning of suffering? Or were they just testing him, perhaps trying to get a rise out of him because he also was a Galilean? Well, we see that it says there were some present at that very time. What helps us to understand a passage, a lot of times we want to put it, understand it in its context. And what helps us is that we want to see what precedes it and what follows it. And when we read that statement, some present at that very time, that clues us in that we want to see the passage immediately preceding this to understand the context. And we're going to read verses 54 through 59 in chapter 12. And what we're going to see is that the event was brought to Jesus' attention, was mentioned right after Jesus had given them warnings of the impending judgment of God and the need to be reconciled to him in order to escape that judgment when it comes. So read along in verse, starting in verse 54 of chapter 12. Jesus also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happened. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over 
to the officer and the officer puts you in prison, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And so what he's saying there, when he's talking about interpreting the signs of the, the weather, there, there are certain signs that they're able to interpret, but he's saying you don't even know how to interpret the present time. The fact that your Messiah has come and that you need to repent, that you need to be willing to believe on him and to receive him. And then when he talks about their accuser to settle with him on the way, he's talking about their need of repentance, to get right with God and to settle accounts with God, to repent and turn to God before judgment comes. So basically, settle your case out of court before you, so that you don't have to stand before the judge in judgment. So those who mentioned the event may have thought, in light of what he just said here about impending judgment of God and the need to be reconciled with him in order to escape that judgment, they may have thought that these Galileans were somehow... Examples of those who failed to interpret the signs of the present time and to be reconciled to God. And and as a result, they fell under some specific judgment of God and perished in the way that they did, being struck down by Pilate in the temple in such a horrible way. They were probably responding to Jesus' illustration about the exacting nature of God's judgment and chiming in, hey, like those Galileans, right? You heard about them. Let's look at Jesus' response to them in verse 2. What does he say? He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. You know, it was common belief at the time that there was a direct correlation between suffering and sin. That suffering was a sign of God's judgment against particular sins. And even in our society today, in, uh, today, people think that way. I mean, it's often wrongly assumed that when someone suffers, it must, it must mean that God is punishing them for something. And we can even think that way. Some examples of this are John chapter 9, verse 2. We have Jesus' disciples say this, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? When they came across a man who they'd seen who was Blind from birth. And that was, that was their question. Who sinned? This man or his parents said he was born blind. I mean, somebody must have done something for him to have this kind of circumstance in life. Or in Job, chapter 22, verse 4 and 5, Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, not a very good friend, he said, is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. That was his conclusion. There's God, you must have abundant evil and great iniquity to be suffering through what you're going through. It's not because you, you fear the Lord and are, are strong in your faith that you would be experiencing this, right? That's the misconception. Well, likewise, in Luke 13, those who mentioned the event about the Galileans, they thought that the way... Those men died, indicated that they were somehow greater sinners, more guilty. However, Jesus said that's not the case. Before we look closer at the rest of our Lord's response in verse 3, I want us to look at the other event that that is mentioned in the passage, starting in verse 4. And this is what Jesus then brings up. He poses this situation to them. 
Verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. Siloam was the name of an area in the southeastern end of the city of Jerusalem where there's a, there's a well-known water reservoir called the Pool of Siloam. You'll see that in other passages in the scriptures. And the tower, it was likely one of the fortifications near the area where the southern and eastern walls of the city came together. That's, a, that's possible. Some people think it might have just been a temporary structure that was built for the sake of constructing a, an aqueduct. But either way, uh, the collapse could have been due to a faulty foundation, but it seems to be just a freak accident. So whatever the case was, the reality was that 18 people died suddenly and unexpectedly as a result. And Jesus, Jesus follows up this second event with a similar question. Here's what he says. Do you think that they are worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Now, the term offenders... Other translations, they'll translate it as debtors, is really just a synonym for sinners. So he's really posing the same question, just slightly different. But he's asking them the same thing. Do you think they're worse offenders, worse sinners than all the others because they died in this way? So our Lord corrected the people's wrong assumption that those who died in these two tragic events somehow were more guilty before God than everyone else. However... The lesson here was that not that those who died were innocent. That's not the point he's making. He's not saying you're wrong, they were actually innocent. He didn't say that. The lesson is not that they were not as guilty as the people were presuming. Jesus pointed out that the people's assumption was wrong, but he didn't follow up by saying, now here's the correct assumption to have about those who perished. Let me tell you what the real situation was with them and why they died this way. Instead, what he, what he did was he shifted the focus to the crowds, the people that were present among him. And the lesson he gave was that those present among him were just as guilty as those who lived, uh, whose lives were cut short. That's what he did. The question wasn't, what should we conclude about those who perished in this way, but what should we conclude about those of us who remain? Jesus gives the answer in the form of a warning. In verse 3 and 5, he says the same thing. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, the people may have formulated their own opinions about those who died, judging them to be especially guilty, but Jesus turned the tables on them, and he pointed out their own guilt. And we must remember that we're fallen creatures, We must remember that we're all sinners who have sinned against a holy God. Romans is very clear as we're going through that. We understand that there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10 says that. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's very clear. The Bible is very clear that we are all sinners who have sinned against a holy God. And because of this, we should never think that we are somehow morally superior to anyone else. We shouldn't jump to conclusions about their status and compare ourselves, we understand that we are all sinners in the eyes of God. So not only did Jesus point out to the people their own guilt before God, but he also warned them that they were under the threat of God's judgment. Verses 3 and 5, But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
And so the second reality is that judgment is certain. So what does it mean that they will all likewise perish? He said you all likewise perish. When they brought up that event about the Galileans dying, they were slain by Pilate in the temple, and then the other people who were crushed by a tower. So what does he mean likewise? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean in the exact same way. He wasn't saying unless you repent, you also, when you're offering your sacrifices in the temple, Pilate's going to come in and slay you, or you also are going to be crushed by the tower in Siloam, which by this point has fallen already. He's not meaning the exact same way. But also, here's what he, he doesn't mean simply that they will die. Since all men die, whether or not they repent, right? All men will die. And plus, that wouldn't be much of a warning to people. Unless you repent, you will someday die. Well, it's like, well, that's the case anyway, right? So Jesus was actually warning them of God's coming judgment Listen to this, against the people of Israel, against the nation of Israel. If they continued in their hardness of heart and rejected him, their Messiah. Jesus was speaking to thousands of Jews in these crowds. And he had already identified their generation as an evil generation. We're going to see in Luke eleven twenty nine. it says... When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And again, did Jesus do miracles? If we read the Gospel of John, do we see that he did signs? Right? He did. He did miracles. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He created food out of nothing and fed thousands, even raised the dead. So right here, what he's saying is that the people are asking for a sign. They want, to, they want to see something spectacular. Okay, those are miracles, but do something like call fire out of heaven or do something amazing. Dazzle us. That's what's going on. It's, it's requesting a sign, really an unbelief. And so they're not listening to him. And he says they're an evil generation. Verse 32 in chapter 11, The men of Nineveh, he says, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then when he later arrived at the city of Jerusalem, we'll see in Luke chapter 19, verse 42 through 44, Jesus arrived at the city of Jerusalem and he wept over it. And here's what he said. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And in Luke 21, verses 20 through 24 He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, Israel. 
They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Now this judgment that he's speaking of right here actually came to pass in 70 A.D. When the Roman general Titus, he besieged and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And listen to this. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed as a result and nearly 100,000 were captured and enslaved. So here's the point. The fact that Jesus in Luke 13 was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in the judgment that would be happening with that generation in 70 AD, we know, in history. This explains why he said you will all likewise perish. They would be swept away by sudden, swift, horrific judgment. Many of them, in fact, will be cut down by the sword. Do you see that? So there is similarity with this judgment that is coming in those who perished at the hands of Pilate or those who were crushed by the falling tower. It is swift and sudden and horrific judgment. He's warning them. You will all likewise perish. However, in the broader sense, the unrepentant Israelites would not only perish in the judgment of 70 AD. There's a bigger picture here, too that we must consider. They would also perish if they continued in their unbelief and the rejection of him and in their unrepentance, they would perish eternally in hell. And Jesus had previously warned them of this as well. In Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, he said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast him to hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And elsewhere we see in Scripture, Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So this shows that this warning applies even to us today. You know, we may not be first century Jews, right? Under the threat of God's judgment, his impending earthly judgment against our sins, we're not the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, but we can be certain that we will face his judgment, his eternal judgment, regardless of how pleasant our present earthly circumstances are, unless we repent. So the message is the same. It applies to us even today. And that leads to the third reality that we see in this passage, and that is that repentance is absolutely necessary. Verses 3 and 5, again. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's the great ultimatum. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So how can you be spared from the judgment of God? How can you be saved from the eternal wrath of God? Our Lord presents one condition, and that's you must repent. Repentance can be defined as a changing of one's mind, a feeling of remorse, and a turning about. You see that? Kind of like a three-part definition, but it involves a change of the mind, or the change of the heart, a feeling of remorse, and a turning about. It's not merely a change of mind. Some would equate repentance and isolate it and just say, oh, it just means change your mind. I changed my mind about Jesus. That's repentance. It's not true. It's more than a change of mind, but a change of mind that is 
followed by a change of action, a true change of heart leading to a change in the course of one's life. The call to repentance, get this, the more we study the scriptures, we're going to see the call to repentance was essential, it was central to the preaching of Jesus, of John the Baptist, and of the disciples, the apostles. And we see that in, in verses such as Matthew 3, 2, 4, 17, Mark 6, 12, Acts 2, 38, 3, 19, 17, 30, 26, 20. I just want to show you that it's, it's there. Don't worry about writing that down. We're going to look at some of those. So the question is, some, some might ask, well, is repentance, is that a requirement for the Jews only? The answer, that's clearly not the case. Now, granted, uh, we have what Paul says, the Ephesian elders, in Acts 21, that's one place we can go. Because, again, the passage we're looking at today, Luke 13, Jesus was talking to who? Jews, right? So that call to repentance, and some people would say, well, he's just talking to Jews. Repentance is only a requirement for them. But we can see in Acts 20, 21, that's a good verse to, to see, where Paul says to the, the Ephesian elders, here's what he says, that he solemnly testified both to Jews and to Greeks. Right? Greeks referring to Gentiles, which means non-Jews. So basically everyone of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul also said in Acts 17.30 to the men of Athens, so these are Greeks again, non-Jews, it was a non-Jewish crowd, and here's what he said in Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Doesn't get much clearer than that, right? All people everywhere. I think that, that makes it very clear. Repentance is required of everyone. It's a necessary condition for receiving God's forgiveness and being spared from his judgment. When Jesus appeared to his disciples after he'd risen from the dead, you see this in Luke 24, verse 26 and 27. Here's what he, he explained to them, that the scriptures taught that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. Now the NASB, New American Standard Bible, and the NIV, New International Version, those, those translations say that, here's how they, they, they translate it, they say it's, that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. That's how they translate it. So not and, but repentance for forgiveness of sins, which in this case is actually a better, more accurate translation based on the weight of textual evidence. And this phrasing, though, is also seen in Luke 3.3. 3. In the ESV version, here's how it reads. Luke 3.3, 3, and when... He went, or, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see that. And this condition of repentance, it's also seen in 2 Corinthians 7.10, which reads, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. A repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. All right, so... Grief, two different kinds. What distinguishes them? Well, one produces a repentance that leads to salvation. So, and here's the thing. Remember that three-part definition that I gave you? That feeling of remorse? Now, people can feel remorse. 
They can feel sorry over their sin, but that alone isn't repentance. I can feel sorry that I've done wrong, that I've sinned. That doesn't alone uh, equate to repentance. It is godly sorrow, which is seen in the fact that that sorrow over sin produced a repentance that leads to salvation. So not just a changing of the mind, feeling of remorse, but also a turning about. So you may ask, don't we need to just have faith in Christ? I mean, aren't we saved by grace alone through faith alone? What would you say to that? Of course, right? Absolutely. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, that's a great verse to go to. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. However, and here's the key, faith is not genuine saving faith apart from repentance. Faith is not genuine if there is no repentance. You see that? This is why when the Bible speaks about salvation, faith and repentance, they're often used interchangeably. Because faith unto salvation always implies that there is repentance. And repentance unto salvation always implies that there is faith. So again, just because you come across a verse and it says, repent and be saved, doesn't mean, well, faith's not involved. Or if it says, believe and be saved, that repentance isn't involved. You see that? So faith and repentance are used interchangeably. They are interwoven aspects of of genuine salvation, of saving faith. So for example, we see this in the fact that John 3.16, what did he say to Nicodemus? He said, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He said, whoever believes. However, he also said in the passage we're looking at now, what did he say? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Very similar passages. But one, he says, whoever believes in him. The other one, he says, unless you repent. So again, they go together, hand in hand. And another example, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, he asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Very clear question right there. And what did they say? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31. Now, when Peter, also in the book of Acts, when he preached to the crowd of Jews on the day of Pentecost, they asked, what shall we do? Similar to this Philippian jealous question, what shall we do implying to be saved? And Peter replied, repent. Each one, of you, each one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see that? What must I do? Believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. What must I do? You must repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Re- baptism, just an indication that you actually are repenting. You know, you're willing to publicly profess Jesus Christ and turn to him. Some people profess faith in Christ and believe that they have fellowship with him even though there's no change in the moral direction of their life and that they still live in unbroken patterns of sin. That's a problem. The Apostle John, 1 John 1, verse 6, he said this, he wrote this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, that's a continual, habitual lifestyle 
we lie and do not practice the truth. And remember, some it's gone through First John, it's very clear. We might profess one thing, but if there is no evidence of the power of God in our life, no change, no change in the moral direction, and we are living in constant, habitual, unbroken patterns of sin, it's evident that our faith is not genuine faith. There was no repentance. No genuine repentance. So repentance and faith, they're interwoven aspects of genuine conversion. They go hand in hand. And Jesus preached this. In Mark 1.15, he said, at the beginning of his ministry, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here's an illustration of this. You can consider the accounts of the rich young ruler. Do you remember him? He came to Jesus and asked him what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus told the man to sell his possessions, distribute them to the poor, so that he would have treasure in heaven and then to come follow him. Upon hearing this, the man went away grieving because, why? Well, he was extremely rich and he owned much property. Jesus said how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus exposed here, this wasn't about, you know, rich people have to sell their possessions to be saved. The point is, he exposed the man's love for money, his love for his possessions, and he explained that what kept the man from salvation was his unwillingness to forsake or turn away from the thing that he loved and valued more than God. It's repentance. He was unrepentant. This account points to the fact that repentance is indeed a condition of salvation that coincides with saving faith. Repentance is more than a mere changing of the mind, as we said. It is a turning from sin to God. It is a turning from worshiping created things to worshiping the Creator. It is a turning to faith, in faith, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is able to to reconcile us to God on the basis of his death on the cross for our sins. And don't get me wrong on this. When we talk about turning from sin and turning in faith to God, you don't want to think of that as I clean up my life first, you know, I break away from my sin and my own efforts, and then I'm ready to believe or I'm ready to receive salvation. That turning is truly just, again, that change of mind about my position before God my guilt before God, my sin, and a change of mind about the, who Jesus Christ really is and what he did for sinners, feeling remorse, and a turning about, turning to God, and it's that turning in faith. The point is, God's going to start changing your life, and God's going to start cleaning you up because he's going to put his spirit in you, and that power of the spirit is going to be making you holy and transforming your life. So here's another illustration, briefly. The Thessalonians, if we read First Thessalonians, we'd see that their conversion demonstrated true repentance and genuine salvation. Paul recalled their faith toward God had become very well known and that people from all over were reporting how they turned from God, from idols, to serve a living and true God. Their conversion involved both a turning to God from idols, you see that, that turning, that's repentance and their faith toward God. Repentance and faith are evidence, are necessary for genuine salvation. So for those of you who, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, you have 
been saved through faith in Christ, what's the application here? Well, you can let this passage remain fresh in your mind as a reminder that we must be about the business of warning people who don't know Christ that they will fall under eternal judgment of God unless they repent and believe the gospel. It's a reminder of us to be fulfilling the Great Commission, to be calling people to repentance and faith in Christ, that they might be saved, that they might not perish. Our job, our responsibility as followers of Christ, is not to coddle people and to make them feel comfortable in their sin, because that's not a loving thing to do. The very thing that has bound them, that is destroying them, and that is holding them captive and is going to drag them into the judgment, the eternal judgment of God, that is the thing that they need to be aware of, that they need to be warned about. That unless they repent, they will also perish. Remember Jesus' words, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And another application would be the fact that it's not only in tra- when tragedy strikes that we would warn people of their sin, but nonetheless, we have, like those examples mentioned earlier from the news, there, there's tragedy that happens. And a lot of times people are left perplexed, wondering, what does all this mean? We're trying to make sense of it. And they think about those who died. Remember what Jesus did with that situation. What did he do? He turned their attention from those who had died onto those who were left remaining. What is, the, what is the point? What is the message for them? It's a warning to them that they must repent. And it's often said that funerals are really, should be for the people who are present. You know, we, we, we speak of the one who has passed. So if we have a, a, a Christian who has died, or even a non-Christian, the point isn't where he, he ended up especially if it's an unbeliever. It's not to dwell on the fact that he was apart from Christ and the, the horrible idea of falling into eternal judgment. The point is that those who are left remaining, they are still alive and they need to be warned that unless you repent, you, you will perish. They also have to turn from their sin and trust in Christ, believe the gospel. So repentance, like I said, is a changing of the mind. It's a feeling of remorse. It's a turning about in faith to God, faith in him, faith in the gospel, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of sinners. Here's a quote that I wanted to share with you that I just thought was very strong and poignant and and spoke well to this passage and what we're looking at. One commentator says this, Catastrophe is no proof of special sin. A man can perish, though Pilate never slay him. He can perish, though no tower crush him. He may die in his bed, with his friends all about him, and even have music while he dies. How nice would that be? But, he will be damned, unless he Repent. Have you truly repented? Have you forsaken your sin, your idols, your worship of created things in this life, valuing them, loving them more than God, worshiping of self rather than the Savior? Though you may pity those who seem to die early, 
and suddenly, in a horrific way, remember that your days are numbered as well. Tragedy might not strike you in the same way, but death is just as certain, isn't it? And after that comes judgment. So the message here, clearly, examine yourself, ask yourself, have I truly repented? I see what the Scripture says. I see what Christ calls every single sinner to do. And what is the evidence of that? You can go through 1 John again. Is there evidence of God working in my life? Has there been a break in the moral direction or change in the moral direction of my life? Is there evidence of God working? Have I truly turned in faith to Christ? Repent and put your trust in Christ so that you might not perish but have eternal life. And for those of you, by the grace of God, are saved, remember, that's what we're to proclaim. That's the most loving thing that we can do. When people are enslaved in their sin, we must warn them. We can't change their heart. We can't change their mind. It's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It is God working. It's God who changes them, opens their eyes to understand and receive the truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. For not leaving us in the dark, but giving us your word that we might be warned. That we might understand you and your purpose for the world which you have created. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here who may profess Christ but truly has not repented. That your spirit might convict them of their guilt that remains. The fact that they are still estranged from you and the threat of your judgment still looms over them. I pray that your spirit would open their eyes, that they might receive and believe the truth, and that they would genuinely turn to you in faith. And that they might cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because, Lord, your grace abounds. And it pours out abundantly on all who call upon you in genuine faith and repentance. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who have experienced your amazing grace, that we would be reminded that you did not just save us merely so that we would be spared of your judgment, but that we might be instruments in your hands to proclaim the gospel to those who are still dead in their sins and trespasses, that we might be instruments in your hands to warn those who are perishing. 